hello and welcome to the JLA cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. What on earth is it, PJ? Where like two episodes ago, we barely got through the intro because we, we both just forgot how to speak. Last episode, we completely nailed it, and we were like, oh yeah, we're perfectionists, we've been doing this for like 27 episodes, it's all perfect. I have the script in front of me, and for like four words in, I was like, I don't know if I can stick the landing. Like, I've already forgotten how to enunciate words. Um, So, I'm just, yeah, slightly faltering, but kind of made it through. I did wonder because there was there was a little pause in between Welcome to and the JLA cast, and I thought, does he remember which podcast this is? What's he I about know. to introduce? I have too many podcasts where I say hello and welcome to. Um, <laughs> it's like a nervous tick. Um, BJ, it's uh, it's quite windy and blustery outside. How, how, what are the weather conditions at uh, at PJ Towers? Oh, same. It's horrible. Dark, gloomy, windy, bit of drizzle out there, and. I have to say, the weather, I think it got to me a little earlier on today. I, I had a, what I'm going to describe as almost my nadir of, of lockdown slash the pandemic, where I was about an hour ago sat on my sofa thinking, oh, I have to get a coffee for recording the podcast today. And I genuinely pulled up Deliveroo <laughs> to see if I could order a coffee to my flat so that I wouldn't have to walk to the kitchen and make one. Luckily... When I saw that delivery would basically double the cost of the coffee, I sort of had that moment where I took a step outside myself and went, what the hell are you doing? What on earth are you doing, PJ? Yeah, no, come on, come on PJ. We've got to be... Um, I mean, I, I don't want to be like... I was going to say... I was going to try and come up with like a, uh, an inspirational analogy, and the only thing that came to head was like uh, the um, the captain on a sinking ship. <laughs> kind of like <laughs> going like, no, I even though the ship is sinking, I have to maintain... a you know, uh, an inspirational figurehead. So, you know, putting on his uniform and sitting down to eat dinner, even as the water's rising. And then I realised that that probably wasn't the most um, optimistic example to be giving. So (laughs) maybe I should keep that to myself. And I'm glad I did. Uh, PJ, I have been deep, deep, deep in the paint this week on um, New X-Men. Uh, the uh, the sister series to oh, yes. uh, Morrison's JLA. Uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting reread. I haven't revisited it for probably a good ten or fifteen years, if I'm honest. It's worth a revisit. I think um, it would be. It's interesting, and I think there's there's but there's a very interesting comparison to be made between the two series because. I know that New X-Men had production troubles. I'm not entirely certain about that, but I, I remember reading that there was some falling out between Morrison and the editorial team about some of the decisions that were coming in. Oh, certainly there was... I know there was one towards the end of the run, wasn't there, which, spoilers if you haven't read it, the the identity of Zorn. Yeah, and I know writers then spent years different creative teams spent years trying to undo that mm. uh, to varying levels of success, I would say. Um, but it is weird. It does... Didn't you say on a previous episode that Morrison has occasionally criticised for 
their endings for like kind of tying an arc together or did I imagine that? Uh, I can't remember. Let's say it is something I said and is never listen back and check. Is this something you agree with? It's something I can see that. Yeah, there are Morrison stories where maybe the ending isn't quite up to what's come before it. The I, I, it got me thinking though because I was thinking about different. If Morrison has a style, it seems to be to do a long run on um, an episodic monthly title. Uh, with long-running subplots, a bit of intrigue, and it, and then it all kind of, even though you have standalone adventures, it all kind of weaves together at the end. I think when Morrison goes into a project, there's always an end goal. There's always like an exit strategy, uh, which might be a bit different to um, uh, a creative team coming on in more of a... Um, oh, um, oh, what am I trying to think? Like a daytime soap kind of approach, where... Mm. You're just there to tell stories with which will never end. There is no kind of end goal. And I think of some notable examples that spring to mind would be, obviously, the Morrison run on JLA, which, of course, is the very reason we're here today. Yep. Um, something like New X-Men and maybe something like Batman. Uh, and I think of those three, I actually think that JLA kind of stuck the landing the best oh completely. i want to say completely yeah yeah because new x-men you get that last big story and then that weird is it a two-part almost epilogue set in the far future or something mm. where mm. beast is evil and i don't quite remember that one very well but i remember not being fully on board with it and it felt, if anything, just a little. It's not that I, I, I didn't. I don't hate any of the ideas in New X Men. I, I like mm. them all. It feels, and I felt honestly enough, I felt the same way about um, Morrison's run on Batman as well. It felt like a book was missing. It felt like if you're gonna have a mystery or a subplot or intrigue kind of running, that's all. Gonna, you know, it's all gonna get wrapped up at the end. I don't think enough time was actually spent, kind of developing it or if that makes sense morrison's run on batman feels a little different to me in that when i have read it it feels like they did have at first a natural endpoint in mind when they were writing it and then they'd get towards the end and think actually i've got more ideas and so sort of just keep going past it and start telling another story mm. And I think it felt to me like that happened two or three times during their run on Batman, if I'm honest, which is, I think, I guess, one of the reasons why their Batman run doesn't really work for me. It's, it is strange, isn't it? And certainly, I, I don't think it was helped later on because, you know, yeah, it's, it's weird. Like, we're talking about the Batman run. And yet, it's weird that, like, of course, it was Batman. Then Final Crisis hit. Mm. Then it was Batman and Robin. Uh, and then there was like the return of Bruce Wayne. Uh, then it became Batman Incorporated. Yep. And then the new 52 happened. And then it became Batman Incorporated again, but like a, a chronological reboot, but not a reboot, like a soft reboot. 
And it's so weird because I remember there's like an editorial note in Wong's story that goes, please note that this story takes place before the events of the new 52. And then suddenly like all the characters, a lot of the supporting characters have just got these awful new costumes for no no reason because it's part of the new 52 and yeah. everything. And it, yeah, it was weird. It, it, I enjoyed a lot of like the little moments, but like there's definitely less of like a cohesive whole to the Batman run, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. But something like the first three books where it was like Batman and Son, Batman the Black Glove, and Batman R.I.P., there was kind of like a narrative running throughout those. Yeah, it felt like... It felt to me like they were building to R.I.P. and that was going to be their stepping off point, maybe. Mm. And let other creators go forward how they wanted and resolve it later on. And then they just had kept having more ideas. Like, I've still got the trade of the resurrection of Rachel Ghoul, which was like the crossover oh, between books. Yeah. So Morrison wrote some and Paul Dini wrote some. And I actually really like that book. I think that's a good good story. I, I think Morrison started strong on Batman and then it sort of derails as it goes along for me. I know, I know it's weird. It's like, I, I remember, I don't know if this was like in the uh, editorial notes or maybe in like a special edition or something like that, but I know Morrison wrote that when they'd been brought on to write Batman by whoever the editor was at the time, I, I, I confess that the name escapes me, they'd hoped that they, they kind of exclusively wanted Bat, uh, Batman. They wanted Morrison to do Batman but with a flavour of, like, the nightmarish 80s stuff that Morrison was doing. Oh, so like, Arkham Asylum. And Doom Patrol and mm. that surrealism and Animal Man. Um, and instead, Morrison chose to adapt, like, the 70s Batman, where he was kind of like a globe-trotting uh, kind of James Bond-esque figure. Yeah, and bring in a lot of stuff from the Golden and Silver Age that had been knocked out of continuity that Morrison then sort of brings back into continuity in really jarring ways. <laughs> and and yet, it's weird, isn't it? Because people are still talking about the Batman of Zurenar. Yep. Uh, I guarantee, although I have no evidence to back it up, that there's probably an alternate costume pack for, like, Batman Arkham Knight or whatever the uh, latest game is. I'm guessing, I don't know. Probably. Probably. I've got that game, I think, but I haven't finished it. So I got really bored of the Batmobile sections. They just annoy me. Yeah, because again, it, they were very much like, it felt like it was Batman in a post-Iron Man world. Yeah. Where suddenly Batman dresses like a tank and drives a tank. And that's not, I don't know, I don't want to be that guy, but I'm kind of like, that's not really my Batman. I also don't like that Arkham Asylum and Arkham City I really enjoyed. But mm. then Arkham Knight comes along and it's just... I, I'd read there was going to be the Batmobile in it. You'd control it fine. But there's so much of it. And the controls aren't that great for it, to be honest, when you're trying to drive the Batmobile. So, yeah, never finished the game. So I have no idea if you can unlock the Batman of Zerenar as a costume or not, but it would not surprise me in the least. I've got to say, I do love Arkham City. I yes, know, me too. Um, I know people say that um, Arkham Asylum is probably like a tighter game, but uh, yeah, I just, I love the world. I love the storytelling. Um, wasn't that, um, was that Paul? 
Dini or Dini, however it's pronounced again. Am I dreaming? I can't remember. I think he was involved in the storylines of, of all three, actually. But I, I agree with you. I think I prefer City to Asylum. I think the main reason people think Asylum of, as being the better game is those amazing scarecrow sections. Yes, which you can never do again, can yeah. you? You know, yeah. for, the first time is all you get. Yeah, they tried in City. There's some Mad Hatter missions that are supposed to sort of oh, yeah. go the same way as the Scarecrow stuff. But because you've seen the Scarecrow stuff in the first game, it just doesn't work. They were good, actually. The thing is, I think, if anything, like, I, I, I swear, now this was in an earlier episode where I, I think I said something like, because I enjoyed Morrison's take on Batman in the pages of JLA so much, Whenever I read Morrison writing Batman in any other setting, for me, I think it's the same Batman. Yeah. And I think you... Did you feel a little differently about that? Uh, yeah, as it went on. I mean, Batman still has the double H sound when Morrison's writing him in uh, in his own book. But, yeah, it did feel like they'd moved on a bit from JLA and obviously there's a few years in between the end of their JLA run and the beginning of their Batman run but there are certain elements that are carried over but yeah by and large it does feel to me like at the beginning it's the same Batman but it moves away from that as it goes along does Batman work best when he is a supporting character no, I don't think so. I think there are some amazing runs on Batman's solo books that I have thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, you know, if you go back to the, the 90s, the big event things that happened, my favourites are all the Batman ones, even though some of them went on too long, like Nightfall, but I really enjoy Legacy and Contagion and Cataclysm and No Man's Land is a lot of fun. Aren't they coming up? Um, is Cataclysm when the earthquake hits Gotham? Yes. And No Man's Land is is the aftermath. Yes. We've got we've we have that to look forward to, do we not? There is a No Man's Land tie-in in the pages of JLA. Yeah. I've got to say, I never read Cataclysm or No Man's Land, but I always I always quite liked the concept. I've got the trades that were released back when when it was originally happening. So the Cataclysm Collection, and then the five volumes of No Man's Land. Now, they did miss things. There were tie-ins that weren't from the central Batman titles to both stories, so that I think there's an issue of Catwoman that gets skipped in Cataclysm and No Man's Land. I know I've got somewhere the Young Justice No Man's Land one-shot, which is not included in any of the trades. So I think they've redone them since with more complete editions, but the versions I've got, they do, uh, you know, they tell the story, and I really enjoy them. Well, PJ... The segue to end all segues. Talking of tie-in issues. Oh, hey, oh, hey. here we go. PJ, what, what have we got on the docket today? Today, we are looking at the main story from JLA. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this episode of Sesame Street was brought to you by the letters... <laughs> J, L, <laughs> the symbol colon. But no, see, well, it's Secret Files and Origins, PJ. Secret Files and Origins, issue two. Issue two, yeah. Um, remind us, PJ, what what was up with JLA Secret Files and Origins as a series? How did that even work? Basically, they were 
one-off issues that came out. There wasn't even any regularity to them. It was just Secret Files and Origins, I think, was an ongoing DC thing. I think they did try and release a book a month in that uh, overall series, but each one would be looking at a different character or team, and they'd be broken down into sub-series. So this was the second JLA book. It was actually released in August 98, I believe, at the same time as JLA issue 21. Keep in mind, the last uh, yeah. issue of JLA we looked at was issue 15. So technically this was released in the future, but then when it came to the trades and the continuity, this is where it slots in before JLA 16. Yeah, it's an odd beast, isn't it? It's an odd... It's odd that... And this will become clear as we start kind of diving into it, but it's odd that they they made the decision, I guess, kind of six months later to say, let's tell a side story from that particular point in time, I guess. The Secret Files and Origins books were basically designed to, certainly after they'd had their first issues, which the first issues, aside from JLA, were sort of all retellings of characters' origins. So a modern retelling, like Batman 1 was a retelling of Batman's origin, Superman the same, and so on and so on. JLA was the origin of... Morrison's version of the JLA, like their first mission before New World Order, mm-hmm. after Midsummer's Nightmare, so when they officially became the JLA, which we covered in our, I don't know, fifth, sixth episode, <laughs> seventh, long time ago. Losing track, PJ. Yeah. But once you get to the second issue, they sort of, the the books then were designed to fill in some gaps here and there, and each one would have a main story at the beginning, and then throughout the rest of the issue you'd have fact files about certain characters, so like their stats and a potted history on what with a pin-up image effectively, and a couple of even shorter stories. Now, even though I've got JLA Secret Files and Origins 2, I cannot remember what any of those stories are, <laughs> but like the first one had the League meeting Electric Blue Superman in a really bad Mark Miller story. Yes, which we purposefully kind of just leapt over because it didn't it didn't add anything yeah yeah the same is true of of secret files and origins too we're not going to cover any stories other than this main one but i do remember number three is during the tower of babel (laughs) storyline at the beginning or babel (laughs) at the beginning of mark wade's run but there's a, a little young justice story in that about how young justice don't trust Robin anymore after the events of and what goes down between batman and the league in tower of babel ah intriguing it's. I guess we should say. Uh, you, you mentioned like the the collected pay, uh, the collected uh, edition. Uh, we've moved on to a new book now. We have. So we are on volume four, uh, strength in numbers, uh, which of course um, we've taken a little holiday to do Earth two, but chronologically comes after straight after Rock of Ages, basically. So the league has undergone a big change. Uh, which is evidenced by the cover, which features uh, not the Ma- not just the Magnificent Seven, but closer to the Magnificent Fourteen. I want to say thirteen. I just counted. No, I think it's fourteen. PJ, I'm going to disagree what? with you there. One of them's not on the cover, though, John. So five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Wait, wait, PJ, are we looking at the same cover? Oh my God. Maybe we oh. have slightly different covers. Right. Because I count the 14th member being a kind of disembodied, digitalized head in the Which background. Which is not on my cover. Oh my God, PJ. 
we almost came to blows over different <laughs> different printed editions of this Mine's book. Mine's the, uh, I think the, the original 98 Titan Books printing, which I looked at the back as well and I got really depressed because this book reprints 10 comics and cost me eight ninety nine. Jeez Louise. The back of my book doesn't even have a price on it, actually. Well, there you go. I got... This was one of the last... This may actually have been the last book I physically owned in the series. I collected it in a very kind of slapdash manner. Um, if only because... I don't know. It was a different era. And I didn't just go on Amazon and kind of buy the thing I wanted. This was very much like, what what can I find in the local Forbidden Planet? <laughs> I got this while I was at uni. I seem to remember. This was the volume, the most recent volume to have been released when I started buying the JLA books, but that was when I worked in a bookshop and I just looked up JLA on the computer to see what I could order and I ordered them in order. So I got New World Order, then American Dreams, then Rock of Ages, then Strength in Numbers. And then I had to wait for ages before I could get the next volumes because they hadn't come out yet. And that really upset me. I forget how... I'm not going to say old, PJ, but I'm going to say uh, venerable you are. I, f- I forget how um, well-preserved you are. I'm very well-preserved, I'll have you know. Uh, and that you were there at the dawn of... The dawn of... Um, um, not going to finish that sentence. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, this is... Uh, we talked about the different eras within the Morrison era. This is definitely a new, new era era of the JLA I would say this is the final era, this is the beginning of the longest era uh, there are some small changes that happen to the team between here and, and the end of the run but this is the beginning of, of almost Morrison's end game with the JLA because at the exciting conclusion of Rock of Ages uh, when a lot suddenly happened um and we speculated that uh, it became a bumper issue just to give Morrison the space to kind of wrap up all those ideas before mm. changing the status quo. The league was dramatically disbanded. Yes. Uh, on the pretense of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the league had become aware of greater cosmic threats to planet Earth and were like, we need a do-over. The yeah. league is currently not strong enough to be worthy of those challenges, so we're going to disband the league and re-found it with a, an enlarged roster, I guess. Yeah, pretty much. And Morrison said in interviews, and I don't know where I read this, that this redesign of a team was something that Morrison wanted because they were purposefully redesigning the league to mimic the greek gods yeah yes so hence and we're going to see be seeing a bit more of them um steel joining the team to play the role of hephaestus the kind of black blacksmith of the gods yeah exactly exactly it i think that's in the wizard jla special they talk about that which i keep meaning to dig out and and read again because i've got it I just I keep forgetting to actually go and get it and read it. I think I read that second hand because I definitely didn't have that copy. I don't know where I heard it. I back in the day I used to visit a comic 
journalist website, uh, journalism website called Silver Bullet Comics, I want to say. I vaguely remember that. And I want to say, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I want to say that they had some good articles back in the day, like actually talking about comics and reviewing them uh, in a way which wasn't just kind of giving like lip service to, to, to them. And I learned a lot about kind of the behind the scenes of comics back then. I, th- I found it quite interesting. I don't know if I was really reading articles back then, to be honest. <laughs> no, and I don't know... Other than what... ones in magazines. Yeah, I don't know what became of it. I don't think it's very... I don't think it's a going concern anymore. But my question is, that is such a Morrison-esque kind of reimagining of a concept. I find it weird that it... I find it weird that it wasn't done at the beginning... Because we've talked about the the joy of The Magnificent Seven and how JLA wasn't a popular book. It had kind of D-list heroes on it, none of the big names. And then Morrison comes along and goes, no, 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 and sweeps papers off the table of like um, whoever was the editor-in-chief of DC at the time, um, smacks the cigar out, out of his mouth and basically says, no, 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 no. If you want to make JLA successful, we need to bring back The Magnificent Seven. And they do, and it's wildly successful. And then, um, like, several episodes in, several issues in, they go, no, 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 no. We're scrapping it, and we're changing everything again. Like, why is that? I wonder if there's an element of, before they were allowed to to use the rest of the toys in the toy box, Morrison had to almost prove themselves and show that they could play with the the big seven first. And then once they proved they had a handle on that, they were then allowed to do some other things and, and bring in some other toys. There's also, don't forget the fact that at this point in JLA, Wonder Woman's dead. So you've already lost one of the big seven. That is true. That is true. And events outside of Morrison's control as well, yeah, due to exactly John uh, Byrne, due to due to, due to the Byrne. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? Like I, I, because I think I've said before, but like there's an alternate version, there's an alternate history of this series where they never had this recruitment drive. It remained the Magnificent Seven, and Morrison just kept telling stories with those great characters as we saw in earth 2 it can be done there's a lot of mileage you can get out of those seven characters and yet at the same time i really do like the expanded roster as well mm. i'm kind of torn between two worlds i want i kind of I'm, I'm kind of a little sad that the series had to change but i also like what it became but it is very different certainly some of these the new characters these specifically in this book morrison's version of them these are my favourite versions of those characters, mm. and we'll get into that as we go along, certainly. But one of them, purely through JLA, for a while, became one of my favourite DC characters, and then I swiftly realised, no, she was only one of my favourite characters in this book. Because oh, it felt to me like, really, Morrison was the only one that got a proper handle on her. That is very interesting. I mean... This was like a big introduction to to the wider DC universe for me. Like I wasn't familiar with the new gods really beforehand. Um, no, me neither. I certainly never. You see, I have a great affection for Steel as a character, 
Uh, and that's pretty much entirely because of his appearances in, in JLA mm-hmm. here. Steel, I, I did know. Obviously, I've re- I'd read Death of Superman, so the whole thing. So I was familiar with Steel before I got to, to his appearances in JLA. But it's also like, you know, the final volume in this series, which we will get to in time, um, JLA World War Three, is one of my favourite books. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wouldn't be possible, that story, without a big, sprawling cast. Like, I love the chaos of it. I love that it kind of holds together despite having, like, 15 plot lines going on at once. And it feels like a war, and it feels like an army, and having 14-odd major characters is not something that I would eagerly try to do. <laughs> but I'm glad, <laughs> yeah. that, I'm glad that Morrison did it and succeeded. Well, we'll find there are there are stories as we go where you only get you don't get the whole league together. It's only some members showing up. Mm. Uh, I think that even happens in this book. And the other interesting thing I think about this book is, as I said, there's ten issues in it. Only five of them actually written by Morrison. Yes. Now you see. Well, I mean, we're skying at it with with this 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 episode here today. But yeah, a very a very different kind of situation to be in i mean have you said previously and again i know i'm i'm holding you to your word in the past (laughs) a lot pj but um haven't you said before that that's because morrison was making guest appearances on different series or am i dreaming well four of the issues in this book are written by mark wade and he does a lot of the fill-in issues on jla during morrison's run his name crops up at least two more and two more issues and i know that morrison wrote this was when Wade was writing The Flash, and I know that when Wade wrote JLA, I think Morrison went and did a guest stint on on The Flash. But I feel like Morrison wrote more issues of the of The Flash than Wade wrote of JLA at this point. So I don't know if this was where the swap actually happened. But interesting, but yeah, yeah. I would love to. Well, look, when we inevitably get Morrison on the show hmm. for for that final interview, we'll put these questions to them, and we'll finally get answers. Damn it, definitely. And pictures of Spider-Man. <laughs> um, Wrong universe. <laughs> PJ, should we uh, should we dive in? Let's do it. And we, we kick straight off, really, this opening page to Secret Files and Origins 2 on New Genesis, of all places. Yeah, uh, we've got um, kind of Peter Gabriel in the background just kind of doing his thing. and uh, That's old Genesis. Oh, sorry. Yeah. New Genesis was when Phil Collins took over as the lead singer. Uh, you're right. Yeah, and here he comes now on his cosmic sled. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're we're just on on New Genesis, um, the the Asgard of the DC universe, mm-hmm. um, where Orion is doing his thing, the God of War, and he's just blasting some parademons. Yeah, don't know where they've come from. They've just turned up. Orion's shooting them. Light Ray turns up saying, hey, Orion, you're shooting power demons. Power demons? Parademons. And Orion's like, yeah, yeah, I am. And that's that's it. Yeah, um, it's, it's, a brief, it's a brief scene. It's only one page. Um, uh, they are... Now, PJ, maybe you could shed some light on this. They refer to High Father, the leader of, of um, the New Gogs, having been replaced by... Tachyon, who we saw briefly at the end of... No, no, we haven't seen Tachyon yet. I no. Say. No, we're going to see Tachyon. What was up with that, PJ? I don't know. 
Well, why are you I'm, even I'm here? failing you this time, John, but I don't know. I'm, I'm not that familiar with what the status quo was in New Gods before Morrison uh, brought Orion into JLA. Um, okay, well, you know, it's, I'm sure it makes sense to somebody, but if you weren't familiar with the New Gods, PJ, what would be the Reader's Digest kind of explanation for that? That there was a High Father... He's probably dead now because that's usually why people aren't around, and someone else has taken over. I mean, yeah, that's pretty. I, I was wondering if you could maybe just explain the new gods as a oh, broader explain concept. New gods, they are <sighs> Jack Kirby. That's that's all you need to know. I think really, they are Jack Kirby's cosmic DC characters. Not quite uh, among his greatest creations. Not quite an alien. Not quite a god. Very, very kind of Thor mixture of like high science and high magic sort of thing. Yeah. Basically, you need to go and read Jack Kirby's Fourth World if you haven't already, because they are some stunning comics and they will introduce you to these characters much better than I could. Well, we have also met, we have already met Darkseid, of course, who is the, is a new god. But is one of the evil gods, basically, if not the evil god. He's um, big, big villain of the fourth world saga. Yeah, um, and Orion, who we see here, and who we also saw in uh, Rock of Ages, is his son, who, despite being angry and warlike, has lent his energy to the service of New Genesis, basically. So I do. I will say there was the reason Orion is with the new gods on New Genesis is because to keep peace between New Genesis and Apocalypse, Darkseid's planet, when they were babies, uh, the children of Darkseid and the High Father of New Genesis were swapped. So Orion was raised on New Genesis and High Father's son, Mr. Miracle, Scott Free, was raised on Apocalypse. I mean, kind of sucks to be Scott Free. Really, uh, he did get a bit of a rough, a rough deal there. That's all right. He's still a good guy. He's Mister Miracle. He married Big Barda. It's all good. He turned out all right, and he's got a, a really just a bitching costume. He um, does. Uh, but yeah, so as these two new gogs are having a little chit chat, uh, we basically get a little allusion to the fact that there is a plan that High Father came up with that Orion and Big Barda, uh, two of the new the new gods, kind of strongest warriors, are to go to Earth, basically. Yeah. And Orion says, Tachyon is high father, where he leads I will follow. Light Ray says, and if he leads to a glut of gaudily clad heroes. And Orion just grumpily says, he leads where he leads. Also, I mean, like, pot kettle black. You yeah. Know. <laughs> Look at what <laughs> you're wearing, new, Light Ray. A new god calling Earth's heroes kind of gaudy is... Um, <laughs> I mean, that's a little close to home. Uh, um, but yeah, so from that ominous kind of what could it mean, we turn the page to possibly... If you could take a decade and condense it into a single image <laughs> uh, and make that a, a kind of glorious uh, double-page spread... We have Aquaman in civilian clothing standing in a cornfield. I've got to say, I love this as a double-page spread, taking two pages and using them just for this one 
quiet, reflective moment for Aquaman that I think is is drawn beautifully despite those braces that he's wearing. Well, let's break it down, PJ. What one of the what are the uh, what are the um, what's the male uh, kind of um, uh, twenty one to thirty five kind of fashion conscious demographic? What 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 are they wearing circa nineteen ninety eight? Well, Aquaman is wearing sunglasses where you know, it's just like the two blue circles over his eyes with then little wires keeping them on his his face then uh, a lovely i'd say aquamarine shirt because he is aquaman where only the bottom button seems to be done up and he's got a nice white vest or t-shirt on underneath it and then yellow braces with I, they look like orange slices slices of oranges on them <laughs> holding up his his gray sort of smart trousers a brown belt with detailing on it that's all swirly and a hooker hand and uh, an epic mane of kind of uh, blonde hair and uh, of course his beard you know classic Aquaman um, PJ I mean Aquaman is here in a way wearing more clothes than he wears in his superhero getup. Um do you suppose he has soured soured showered I meant to say showered he may have soured a little <laughs> bit as well do you suppose the king of Atlantis showers before wearing human clothing? That is an excellent question. I don't know if I have an answer for you. Because he's uh, always I would wet. imagine he, but... he knows he's going to meet some important people here, so he would use some soap at least, maybe when he's in the seawater. I'm not suggesting I'm not suggesting for a moment that Aquaman smells. Like, you know, he's a very <laughs> you know, he's wet all the time, you know, he's in salt water. What I'm saying is because he's always in salt water, he might be a little crusty. You know, some kind of fr- a freshwater rinse might might do him some good. Maybe, maybe. I think I think he's clean at the moment. I'm going just going with that. <laughs> thank you, thank you, PJ. Um, he is standing next to a car, and it's a Ford, and we know it's a Ford because it's got a tiny little sign on the side of it that says Ford. Yeah, maybe that's big, important. I don't know. Big blue car, and then we get the the title. Heroes with the credits. Uh, Christopher Priest is the writer of this issue. Yannick Paquette is the penciler. Mark Lipka did the inks. Kurt Hathaway was the letterer. Pat Garrahy is the colorist. So there's one name we know from our previous issues. Digital Chameleon did the separations. L.A. Williams is the assistant editor. And good old Dan Raspler is still editing. Um, It's interesting, some of the names here, because Yannick Paquette is uh, a very uh, prolific kind of mm. uh, artist in, in working for Marvel and DC. Um, I think I'm suddenly struggling to bring him to mind, but I have a number of books with their art in it. And this feels like quite early in their career. I think so, yeah, I agree. I say this double-page spread is maybe one of the, the better images in this story. Yeah, I say I love this double page spread. I think it's it's just a lovely, beautiful, reflective moment for Aquaman with his natty braces. Um, but yeah, I think this is also visually one of the high points of the story. Yeah, and again, I don't want to, you know, and frankly, Yannick Paquette is more successful than me. You know, they don't need, you know, they don't need me criticizing their artwork one way or another. But it feels a little rough in places in this mm. issue. But yeah. as, as we were saying, this particular image is a high point. It, this could be the album cover to, say, a Counting Crows record, perhaps. <laughs> this was the cover to Aquaman's <laughs> debut album, Songs of the Ocean. 
Can I borrow a feeling? (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was literally just whale song. Do do you suppose would Aquaman? Doesn't Aquaman get stronger when he's in seawater? Yeah. So is he? Do you think he's suffering right now? I don't think he's suffering, but I think he would like a drink. He's probably thirsty. But fish don't drink, PJ. Then, but he's half human. I am well. True thing is, that's a good question though. I assume he has some kind of. He might have like a super liver, like a lot of sea dwelling mammals for kind of processing all that salt. Um, oh, super kidneys. Sorry, um, but yeah, does he just try to like absorb ambient moisture from the air, or do, does he actually need a glass of water every now and then? Genuinely not sure. I'm going to now keep an eye out and see if he has a glass of water later on in this story. Wonderful. Well, yeah, okay, you, you be on water watch. Um, water watch, yes. Keep, keep us honest, PJ. <laughs> um, but yeah, as we turn the page, uh, we realise that Aquaman is not alone. And we have um, Superman uh, in his civvies as well, looking slightly less uh, stylish than Aquaman, I would say. Yeah, just jeans and a white t-shirt for Clark Kent here, and his glasses, because he's Clark Kent. And he has two dogs. Yeah, neither which is of, nice. Neither of whom is Crypto, I would say. I don't think Crypto was in the comics at this at this point. I don't think they reintroduced Crypto until the early 2000s. Righto. Okay, good to know. Good to know. Again, we are only 11 years post-Crisis on Infinite Earth. <laughs> um, but yeah, but uh, they're just having a little chat, really. Um I'm always a, I'm always a fan of superheroes hanging out in civilian clothes. I quite yeah. I quite like that. It does make you wonder whether Aquaman is dressed like this because he thinks it's stylish, or because he lives with the fish people and doesn't actually know. I'm now wondering if he's maybe borrowed this outfit from Clark. Can you honestly imagine? Can you imagine Clark Kent wearing this? Yes. It was the 90s. Although, but um, if Clark were wearing it, the shirt would be done up and he'd have a suit jacket and a tie with it as well. Um, interestingly, now, oh God, PJ, I'm certainly doubting myself. Um, Clark, obviously, appears utterly human here. Yeah, yeah. How did, the, how did his energy powers work at this point regarding being human? So I believe he's still wearing the containment suit, his his Superman costume underneath his clothes, and that helps him regulate his powers so he can appear human. He can not shut them off, but sort of dampen them so that he can still appear as Clark Kent. I'm not 100% sure if I've got that right. I haven't read the entirety of the Superman Electric Blue storyline in his own comics. Uh, I think I've only read the beginning of it, really, and then JLA, where he's much better. But that, I think, is is what what's going on here. And, uh, yes, well, we have to assume that he kept his career as a reporter going during Oh, he did, period. yeah, so, he did. Yeah, so, so yeah, like, um, they're just having a little kind of chit-chat, basically. Um, and they're talking, well, I guess they're directly referencing the events of Rock of Ages. Yeah. Where they, I guess they... They acknowledged that they very nearly, very nearly failed to prevent a future where Darkseid conquered Earth coming to pass. Yeah, and then also had an issue when the Joker got hold of 
the world of Gog and almost destroyed the world as well. In a lot of action, that was always off panel. <laughs> but Aquaman actually says as well here he never thought to go this far inland and that it's really beautiful. Which is nice, at least. Yeah. I like yeah. that little touch. Um, but yeah, they're basically... They're they are just assessing their role in the whole things, in the whole in the whole thing, and uh, you know the role of the JLA, and you know what it means to face down terrible kind of cataclysm and narrowly avoid it. Um, and then they hop in uh, a little pickup truck slash, well, it's their Ford, it's their Ford pickup truck, and they drive back to wherever they're going because apparently someone else will be joining them. Yeah, the exact words are, it's getting dark. We better get going. He'll be here soon. So from that, we cut to... Well, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's somewhere. It's like a a pit just full of technology, like cables, wires, little computer kind of circuit boards and stuff. And I guess we're in a facility of some sort, and somebody is down in the pit working on the electronics. I assume we're in the Watchtower, but not the JLA's Watchtower, the other Watchtower, the one in Gotham, the home of Oracle. Uh, Which was a clock tower? Yeah, so she had an apartment sort of underneath this big clock tower in a Wayne building, and the clock tower was her base of operations. Now, should we talk about Oracle briefly? Yes, we should. Because the year is 1998, and Oracle, formerly Batgirl, Mm -hmm. Barbara Gordon, how long has she been Oracle in real time, if that makes sense, if the year is 1998? For her? Well, for us, at least. Oh, for us. Okay. Yeah. Well, Killing Joke was what, 88, 89? Oh, so I think it was another year. Another year or two, I think, before Barbara Gordon officially became Oracle. Certainly she's Oracle by the time Nightfall happens, which I want to say is 94. So we're, we're kind of, I mean, charitably, we're, we're talking the better part of a decade now, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Although, of course, not that much time, is, that, that much time hasn't passed in, um, in comic time. Um, so... I hadn't really feel about that, but yeah, I guess the Killing Joke was was not long. It, it was a tail end of the eighties, basically. So yeah, yeah. Wow, weird. Yeah, and obviously a very controversial book, and the decision to roll the events of that book into the main continuity. It could have well just been like a weird little kind of standalone Elseworlds kind of story, hmm. but no, like Barbara Gordon's career as Batgirl was cut short when the Joker shot her in the spine and paralysed her from her waist down. Yeah. At which point she becomes she becomes Oracle, uh, Batman's kind of technological advisor. And I guess kind of... Oh, this almost like kind of godlike disembodied presence because she could be in security cameras or um, uh, in computer systems kind of collecting intel for him. Yeah, she can basically hack into almost anything and help Batman out in in whatever it is, and, and the rest of the Bat family too. She'd help Robin and Nightwing and even Catwoman on occasion, and 
Black Canary as well, because Birds of Prey was, I think, going on at this point in time. Well, it's it's weird, isn't it? Because I know, I know, with the many, the many, many reboots that DC's gone through, um, Barbara Gordon is Batgirl again, I yeah. believe. Yeah, and uh, you know she's younger. She's 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 you know out being being a physically active hero again because those events never happened anymore. And and it's weird because there's a lot of messy stuff tied up in the Killing Joke, um, editorially and some of the decisions made behind the scenes at the time. But it's interesting because I was really introduced to Barbara Gordon as Oracle, and for me, I that was. You know that was my version of the character, and I, I found I found a, a particular strength in that character, having overcome some terrible tragedy to to find another way to be a hero. Yeah, and I know that there were people who were certainly at the time unhappy when they made her Batgirl again, because having this positive role model in a wheelchair who was disabled but was also still able to be i'm really trying to be careful to pick my words here i know i know what i'm trying to say though because 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 obviously like the killing joke has a very horrific crime at the heart of it and if it was truly just you know just a work of fiction then you know so what you know but i think what what kind of definitely um i think offended a lot of people at the time was some of the decisions among editorial staff where I think there's a famous quote where somebody on the editorial team heard about the, the proposal to kind of shoot and cripple Barbara Gordon and basically dismissed it saying like, oh yes, cripple that. And then yeah. uses a rather derogatory term for her. Yeah. Um, so much in the same way that like violence in the real world can often be very cruel and indiscriminate and humiliating, that happened to a beloved character. And I think that what was great about Oracle was that she turned that she didn't let that become the defining thing in her life like it did feel like somebody recovering from a terrible cruel tragedy to become an active hero again yeah and yeah even though the original crime was maybe wrong maybe retconning it altogether doesn't solve it either yeah i think it's a very complicated and thorny difficult issue and I don't really know where I land on it if I'm honest I I I miss having Barbara as Oracle I think she was great in that role but I've also really enjoyed some of the stories that have been told since they returned her to the role of Batgirl certainly what Gail Simone did on the book I think was was there was some very good stuff there and yeah it's a really complicated issue I think I think you know suffice to say Oracle is going to be playing a bigger part in the pages of JLA now, and uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time with the character. And yeah, if this was my primary introduction to Oracle, I I like I like her. Like I I always have. I always I always thought she was a very strong character. I think it also makes total sense that Batman would bring her into the JLA. It just the, the JLA needs someone like her. Indeed, and. You know, and it's it's interesting in a way because it's such it's such a sensible idea. You you're kind of amazed that it hasn't been done more often, mm-hmm. or has since been like again retconned out that there isn't like a 
an Oracle character, even if it's not Oracle, providing kind of tech support for the JLA. Yeah, I think the one thing I will say is reading this issue first does rather ruin the surprise of her introduction in uh, the next issue of JLA was, or the one yeah, after. But I, I was going to say the same thing. It's almost for, it's the problem with collecting it as a trade, isn't yeah. it? It's um, this is really kind of meant to be an accompanying story rather than a prequel. But there we go. But PJ, sorry, here's me rambling on. Um, what on earth is going on here? Well, she's she's working on her computer systems, uh, basically under the floor. She's she's got a harness holding her in place in this sort of big chasm in her base of operations, and she's on the radio to Batman, who's basically saying, you know, you're on a, you're on a time limit here, and she's replying with, look, this is your time limit. You could change it. I've got a lot to do here. Why don't you just leave me alone and let me get on with things? And. Basically, Batman has tasked her with tapping into the main computer on the JLA watchtower. And given that Batman is a founding member of the JLA, he probably could have just, I don't know, given her the keys, but has clearly chosen to do it in a covert manner. This issue is very much a case of Batman being a dick. (laughs) It just is. There's no reason for it other than... Yeah, we'll just have Batman be a, a bit of a bit of a dick. This issue, uh, yeah, and um, as if to uh, prove, well, I don't know, is, is this dickish? I don't know. He casually, while he's talking to Oracle, he casually, very very laissez-faire manner, tosses a batarang down onto the street below, and knocks out a guy with a gun who was trying to sneak up on the Huntress, who is currently beating another guy in an alleyway. Yeah, and she's surprised that he's there. She says, what rule have I broken now? And Batman says, Huntress, that guy's a cop. And apparently, undercover cops keep checkbooks in their back pockets so that people know they're undercover cops and not actual drug dealers. So, now, I'd I'd never encountered Huntress before. This is my first introduction to Huntress in the pages of JLA. Um, I'm assuming that she is also a vigilante because she's wearing a superhero costume. Uh, Batman apparently knows of her existence and is also very critical of her. Um, PJ, how long had Huntress been a going concern? Well, Huntress was... There was a Huntress pre-crisis. I can't remember the exact details of that character. I've got a feeling she might have been... She started as Huntress and then became... She was the daughter of Batman and Catwoman. That's it. Pre-crisis. Oh, really? Huntress was the daughter of Golden Age Batman and Golden Age Catwoman on oh. Earth 2. And then when they... I think her name, her name was Helena Wayne. And then when they rebooted after Crisis on Infinite Earths, they introduced reintroduced Huntress as a new vigilante in Gotham, Helena Bertinelli, whose parents were part of a crime family that were killed in a mob hit. And Helena became Huntress to avenge them but she was she wasn't a mur- outright murderer but her methods were a lot harsher than batman's she would she was Zack Snyder's version of batman <laughs> effectively and batman does have a very sanctimonious approach to vigilantism where yeah. he's very much like it's my way or the highway basically yeah exactly exactly so huntress did appear briefly in uh Nightfall, and she was then sort of part of all the Bat books, the Bat family for a while. 
there are times when because her costume here is basically a, a black onesie with a big purple cape and some other purple detailing on it purple belt and gloves there are times when her costume has been a lot more revealing than I this was gonna, yes now I, I want to bring that up because yeah here we have uh huntress you know as you say robed in dark colors with a big old cape um pretty um covering for a, a superhero heroine's costume of the 90s uh and then yeah like all the later imagery i see of her she's yeah she's wearing a lot less shall we yeah. say <laughs> seems a lot yeah. less practical for ali vigilanteism exactly i mu- this is my favorite look for huntress the the black onesie cuz it keeps her covered she's protected presumably this is all armored you know like all the batman Nightwing outfits, all of them, same deal, and she's not exposing all her flesh to titillate people. Yeah, weird one. It's weird that we get a step backwards like that. Yeah. Normally it's the other way. Yeah, Um, but it's Huntress I was talking about earlier. Huntress in this book is my favourite take on Huntress and made me love the character. Yeah, I really, I really, I came to really like Huntress as well. And then once... Once Morrison's run on JLA is over, they do... It's not just with how she looks. Just everything about Huntress seems to take a step backwards. And, um, yeah, I I lost interest in the character, really. Well, I'm sure we'll have a lot... Frankly, I think we'll have a lot to say about Huntress in the coming months because she is a very unlikely addition to being on the JLA. And yet that's kind of what makes me like her. Yeah. And it's very much for character as well. It's also like, why on earth is she here when she's like another version of Batman on a team which is already very overpowered? And then you start to realise that, yes, she has a very legitimate reason for being on the team. Yeah. Yeah. But so this we... is basically Batman giving her the sales pitch, effectively. Well, he doesn't come out and do that. He says, look, you need to be able to tell good guys from bad, and now here's a piece of paper and a key. And he's also, again, as you say, being a dick, because... Yeah. He doesn't just talk to her. He has to leave a note pinned to a lamppost, maybe, which as you, which also has a key pinned to the note, and it has been signed with the bat symbol. Which does beg the question of whether Batman has kind of customised letterhead stationery. He definitely does. a stamp. No, he's got stationery. He's got stationery. <laughs> well, um, Huntress takes the note, goes home, has like a coffee, showers... Reads the note, screws it into a ball, chucks it out the window, and then seems to change her mind and exits stage right. Yeah, she uh, she starts marking papers because in her civilian identity, Helena Bertinelli is a teacher. She's a teacher. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Nope. How God, teachers who notoriously have so much spare time? Anyway, <laughs> I'm is, not is, saying is... she's a good teacher. <laughs> yeah, no wonder she's cranky. Like if I was a teacher, I'd be I'd be livid. I'd be beating people on the streets as well, just <laughs> just to work out some anxiety. Um, so we cut from Huntress and Batman to well, you may have guessed it, but we're on the Kent family farm, and um, uh, yeah, Ma and Pa Kent are going to bed, and they're kind of bowing to Aquaman, which is quite a cute. cute moment. Yeah, I, I love this moment for the Kents and. Pa, Jonathan, says, it was a real honour to meet you, Your Highness. And, and Aquaman is, is very down to earth. He's you know, Bowing's not necessary. Arthur will do. Yeah, and again, now this raises a lot of questions, PJ, but as the Kents go to bed, uh, Superman and uh, Superman's basically like, oh, I wonder if 
he, whoever that could be, will ever get here. And Aquaman goes, he's here, he's been waiting in the kitchen for 15 minutes. I think sometimes he forgets I can see in the darkest ocean depths. And we cut to the kitchen where Batman is eating an apple. He says, yes, that's it. I forgot. That sounds likely, doesn't it? I do love that little moment. I think that's great. That little bit of of Batman snark coming in. Again, just being a little bit of a dick. Now, PJ, Batman thrives in an urban environment like Spider-Man. He's very good at swinging between buildings, gliding the lot. The Kent Farm, I believe, is the only building for about 20 miles in every direction. Did he fly here on the bat plane? He either flew... Yeah, no, he can't have used the JLA teleporters because they're not using the watchtower right at this moment. That comes up in a moment. So, yeah, he must have flown the plane, parked it somewhere nearby, maybe... I assume it's got a stealth mode so he can land it quietly, so perhaps behind the barn. It does... Now, now, I think Superman was just distracted because he was, like, hanging out at home. Like, <laughs> I do not know how, how, how Superman did not hear the bat plane landing. Or uh, maybe he tunnelled in. Maybe he had like the bat, the bat mole, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, so Batman's eating an apple, which is a fun vision, and um, it turns out the three of them have met to have a big discussion about who to recruit onto the league. I do find this interesting because Batman and Superman—that makes sense. But having the third person to be making these decisions with them be Aquaman, I think, is very interesting. But when you do sort of drill down into it, it does make sense. There is no Wonder Woman at the moment. She's dead. She feels like she'd be the natural. And where's... But where's Jean, though? Yes, that's the other thing, though. Where is Jean? And I wonder if maybe Jean just sort of abstained, said, I'll leave this up to you. And Aquaman already being a ruler, a king, therefore a leader, sort of is just sort of the natural choice to make these decisions. Well, it is very weird, isn't it? Because it was a bit like this at the end of Rock of Ages, because with Wonder Woman being deceased, and I think I believe Jean was busy performing surgery on Jem, son of Saturn, which is a sentence I never thought I'd utter. Um, <laughs> really, the only people being excluded are Kyle and Wally. Yeah. Which is, again, they are new, but it does seem a little kind of unfair in a way. <laughs> they, they do. I think they've earned the right to maybe have some say in this. Yeah, yeah, but they're clearly doing a recruitment drive because Batman says uh, neither Nightwing nor Black Canary would consent to join the league. My list is Plastic Man and Oracle so far. Uh, yes, and um, interesting that Plastic Man has become so dear to Batman. One would imagine that Batman would not have the patience for Plastic Man, but apparently sees something in him. Um, and um, yeah, Superman suggests Captain Marvel or Firestorm. To which Batman says, well, look, no disrespect, we've already got like a ton of really strong people. I think we need more thinkers. He also says he's still working on another member, which I guess is Huntress. We, we, one, one can perhaps assume. Or maybe it's um, Anarchy. No. It might be Anarchy. No, Dan Anarchy's still too young for Batman in Batman's eyes. Yeah, but he's wearing he's wearing really like high heels, isn't he? <laughs> like he's wearing like platform shoes to make himself seem taller. Yeah, and and a weird get up that makes his neck really long, so he looks like an adult. But it's it's a whole thing. Well, well, yeah, no, I was Anarchy's say we'll not showing up in these books. We're <laughs> we're not going to get there. Um, 
But yeah, so the three of them just have a back and forth where uh, apparently they're all in agreement that Steel would be a good recommendation. Um, apparently Ray Palmer, the Atom, is not quite ready for it. Um, so this is at a time when Ray Palmer has been de-aged. So he's sort of back back to being a teenager rather than the fully grown adult Atom that we all know and love. So he's, he's on the Titans at the moment and that's where they're going to leave him. Yeah, um, which is cool, I guess. Um, they thought about elongated man, but um, this, they agree that plastic man has more versatility. I do, I do like the idea that to be a properly functioning league, you have to have one guy who can stretch. You need a stretchy guy. You need a stretchy guy. We got a we got a speedy guy. We got a stretchy guy. Got a you know a dude who can make things. Um, and. I've not been a big. I'm not. I'm not carrying a torch for Elongated Man. I have no connection with the character, but he must have like he just gets shot on by Plastic Man like so often. There's an episode of the Justice League Unlimited cartoon that focuses on Booster Gold, where the the League are fighting some weird thing, and Booster Gold is basically put on crowd control and helping the public, and he's teamed up with Elongated Man and Green Lantern. John Stewart gets punched over to them, and Elongated Man's like, oh, do you need my help? And Green Lantern literally says, Plastic Man's already over there. We don't need two stretchy guys. <laughs> it's that. <laughs> yeah. Um, poor, poor Elongated Man. Besides, his name is too long to get on a chair anyway, so that would be, that'd be quite <laughs> difficult. Um, but they do agree that they need somebody to help them with mystical threats, PJ. And while they suggest Zatanna, apparently Aquaman has someone else in mind. Hmm. He just says, I've got that covered, leave it to me. And and Batman's just like, all right, I trust you. Uh, yeah, and from there we cut back to um, Oracle. Sorry, I thought I had two pages skipped together. Uh, <laughs> we cut back to Oracle, who has nearly finished her work on the computer matrix Matron thing she's doing. And um, yeah, she has apparently gained access to the JLA Watchtower security systems. Yeah, so she turns on the cameras and says, uh, Batman, got a problem. Someone's already up there and he's starting without you. Which, of course, now, PJ, this raises a lot of questions, PJ, because the current iteration of the League built the Watchtower at the start of this series. There's yeah. never been a JLA Watchtower before now. No. How on earth did Guy Gardner get onto it? Don't forget, he's been up there before. Wasn't he one of the ones who auditioned for the League in American Dreams? Oh, he did. So he's probably, they, you know, the League having disbanded his public knowledge. So he's he goes up there. And yeah, Guy Gardner, in a splash page, is sat at the table with his leg up. This is a recreation of that panel from Justice League issue one in the 80s. Where that I think the first issue opens with Guy Gardner in his Green Lantern outfit sat in this exact pose at the JLA table saying he's going to be running things. Now, I'm not, that's a period of time in JLA history that I'm not massively familiar with. That would have been pre crisis. Yeah. Um, uh, no, just post crisis. That was the first iteration of Justice League after crisis on even Earth. Oh, okay, okay. So kind of like 87, 86 yeah. sort of time. Yeah. So is that prior to. At the same time as, or before, JLA International. It's the book that would become Justice League International in the 90s. Right, 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 right. In which, of course, Guy Gardner, with his crazy Green Lantern costume and haircut, 
would be a mainstay. Yeah, yeah, he was still with it even when he was wielding Sinestro's yellow power ring later on, just as Guy Gardner. That was his superhero name. <laughs> um, so this, is, this is a point in time in which, because obviously the Green Lantern Corps has been destroyed, essentially, and mm-hmm. Kyle has the only surviving Green Lantern power ring, which was a which was a prototype ring, wasn't it, or something like that? It was. Yeah, it was yeah, not it design. Was, it was the prototype because it was the first ring that didn't have the yellow impurity, and uh, could do a couple of other things as well. There's there's a, a whole Green Lantern storyline where it sort of goes into the differences between Kyle's ring and Hal's ring uh, in when Kyle is the the main character in the book. Uh, I think soon after this sort of time, around ninety nine, I think it happened. Right. So. Now, if I remember my Green Lantern history, because there's been like 18 Green Lanterns at this point, um, Guy Gardner was the uh, one, two, three, the fourth Green Lantern, including Alan Scott, the first Green Lantern. Yeah, so I think the, uh, the, I don't know if this is still, but the official continuity was... When Abin Sir landed, crash landed on Earth, and his ring went to scan for a replacement, it found two potential replacements equidistant apart. They were both the exact same distance from the ring, and it just went 50 50, went to Hal Jordan. The other one it could have been was Guy Gardner. So Guy Gardner eventually does get brought in as a Green Lantern. He replaces Hal Jordan for a brief time. I, I can't remember if that's some sort of test for Hal or something like that, but then eventually. Hal gets his ring back. Guy is made another Green Lantern. And there's also Green Lantern Secret Files and Origins. One reveals that when Ganthit is trying to find someone to give Kyle's ring to, he actually goes to Guy Gardner first and says, you be Green Lantern, and Guy turns him down. Because this is at a point... Now, I, I, I must admit, I don't know a massive amount about Guy Gardner other than his prevailing character trait is being obnoxious. Yes, um, but this was a point in his life where he was calling himself Warrior because he no longer had a Green Lantern ring and he had discovered that one of his parents was an alien? Yes, and it meant he could, I think, turn his arms into guns or something like that. I can't yeah, remember he, his exact he, power set. No, that was it. He was he was like, uh, oh God, that, that mutant who was prominent in the 90s in X-Men. Was it random? Yes. He had the power to turn his arms into guns. Yeah. Yeah, so that was... And he had a bar called Warriors. Yeah, and, and he, he has this uh, kind of natty costume where he's just wearing red trousers, basically, and his upper body is just covered in red, blue, and yellow kind of, if not tattoos, like war paint or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and here he is, re- again, recreating his that image from Justice League 1, saying he is here to basically start and run the all-new JLA. Yeah, basically just and everyone and, and collectively the audience groans and goes, Oh bloody hell, Guy Gardner's back. Uh but he's not alone. Uh he has uh two kids with him, teenagers. Yeah. Yeah, they're just wandering around and they basically ignore Guy and wander off. And this is Boris and Natasha, apparently, and they say was it a mistake to bring Mr. Gardner along? And they say, look, the, the teleporter was delivered for John. So that's how Guy got up there. These kids brought him. And they shouldn't have used the teleporter. They did leave a note, but it turns out Guy Gardner was in college with John. 
John, it turns out, John Henry Irons. Steel. Yes. Um, so, which again raises other interesting questions in that the JLA manually delivered, probably through the post, a teleporter <laughs> to the civilian house of John Henry Irons, who is a superhero, but has never been associated with the League. Uh, a teleporter which apparently can be operated without a key or any form of security protocol that allowed yeah. them to get to the moon. Yeah, so his teenage... And I'm not entirely sure the exact relationship of, between Natasha and John, if she's an adopted daughter or his blood daughter or a niece or something that he looks after. But she lives with him, and she and her friend just decided to use the teleporter and invited Guy Gardner along. Am I being mad? I th- I'm suddenly doubting myself. I thought Natasha was his niece. But is I'm, it... I'm, are they are they father and daughter? I'm not sure. She she's calling him John, so I genuinely don't know. Hmm. Okay. Well, either way, Guy Gardner, uh, kind of your drunk former secondary school PE teacher, has now declared himself the head of a JLA, and two teenagers are just wandering around the Justice League Watchtower. Yeah, pretty much. And from there, we cut to uh, Steel in his civilian identity, in the kitchen of his apartment, reading a note pinned to his fridge, which says, Dear John, went to the moon, back later. Love, Nat. Yeah, and he seems quite rightfully confused by this. I would be confused. Um, And then suddenly Superman, Electric Blue Superman, is in his kitchen. And uh, they they know each other pretty well at this point, I'm guessing. Yeah, they they do. They do. They've become quite good friends since Superman returned and John did a good job filling in for him as as Steel during the reign of the Superman. Uh, But it does feel like at this point Steel has retired. John doesn't want to be Steel anymore because Superman says, look, we'd like you to join the, the league's restructuring. We want you. And John says, I'm just a man who filled in for you once. Cataclysms are a bit out of my range and I've got kids to look after. I, I'm, I'm needed here. I'll help you occasionally if you need it. Feel free to ask, but I'm not joining as a member. Um, yes, and from there we cut to, um, well, to put it bluntly, uh, a nun throwing Zoriel out of a church <laughs> and accusing him of blasphemy because he dared to suggest that God doesn't actually have a gender. Uh, I, I, do, I do love as well, he says to her, look, it's true, I swear it. And she says, angels don't swear. And he just goes, well, who told you that? And she <laughs> says, it is written. And he says, written where? I wonder if Zoriel's case would have been more compelling if he hadn't been wearing a creepy overcoat and a hat and had instead just come in with his big wings out and gone, hi, I'm an angel. How's it going? Yeah. Yeah, but no, he's still a bit creepy at times. He doesn't quite know how to interact with humans. It does raise the baffling question of... When you introduce a genuine, the concept of angels and a genuine biblical God, who I guess is the same thing as the presence. Yeah. From, yeah. I don't know. This is the kind of thing that the world building was never built to support. But like, it does raise a question of how does like an actual orthodox religion function in a world where angels are a real physical thing? I don't think we ever really get an answer either, do we? I don't think just, we do. Just no. Zauriel is there. He's a character. He's an angel. Accept it. Uh, but Aquaman uh, turns up. 
Yeah, and I was going to say, like, Zoriel is here, but he's basically not the Zoriel we know at all. No, he's changed quite significantly between the the last time we saw him and, and now. Did he have... I'm guessing he didn't have his own series. I can't imagine him kind of no. carrying that. No, this... this Well, not this, but the next issue of JLA, rather, would be only the third appearance of the character, I think, after those two issues of JLA, uh, issues six and seven. Yeah. And, it, and it's weird because now Zoriel has... Like, um, you know, his own costume, which, you know, will become his his main costume for the rest of the series. Um, His skin is more kind of white, like pure white rather than like a kind of grey. He's got his flaming sword. You know, I quite like his look, to be honest. Me too. Um, But again, his personality, he's almost a completely different character. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if this is time on Earth has changed him because he will have been on earth for a few months now. Yeah. It's, it's tough, isn't it? And I, I don't think I, frankly, I don't think it's a question that really needs answering because Zoriel is going to become more of a, a constant presence in the series now. And I'm, I'm very much going to enjoy having him around, you know, he, mm. he, he's a fun addition to the league, but it, in a way it just makes his first appearance a bit of an oddity really, because it's almost like looking back at that hell on earth story, which I really like. Yeah. Um, it's almost like Morrison was doing a weird meta narrative where it was kind of like an angel turning up again in the 90s in like the MTV era. Yeah. So instead, you have an angel who talks like a normal person and is very kind of like sardonic and well, kind of like a Generation X angel, basically, a Gen X angel. And now he's more like a traditional superhero. Yes. I have no answers. These are just weird observations, basically. Well, I'm guessing he's been doing the superhero thing, because while he and Aquaman start talking, uh, Zauriel does say there is evil afoot, and they fly to a bus that's being held up, or a tram. No, it's a tram, isn't it? I would say the very fact... Well, that would probably mean they're in San Francisco. I assume. Yeah. Um, Oh, I don't know. I guess the point is, I don't think Zauriel... It, based on his previous appearances, would ever unironically say evil is afoot. No. He probably would have made some sarky joke. But uh, but yeah, anyway, um, we, we're seeing a weird little partnership here between Zoriel and Aquaman, which is going to be repeated a few times in yes. coming stories. Yeah, and I actually really like this scene where you get basically Aquaman and Zoriel having just this normal conversation with Aquaman saying, look, the League's restructuring, we need someone with knowledge of the spirit world, we'd like you to be our occult expert if you would join us. And Zoriel's like, well, I've got the experience, but I'm a fallen angel, is that really a good idea? And Aquaman says, well, you need friends, we're happy to be your friends. But while this is going on, they're just punching out muggers on a tram. Uh, Yeah, yeah, um... Aquaman proving he has some versatility, you know, um, you know, when he's not in the sea, he's just, you know, quite happy to stick an elbow to a mugger. Um, and yeah, so I guess Zoriel is on board, I suppose. Um, yeah, and from there, if we've exhausted that scene, uh, we cut to the outskirts of Gotham, where there is a kind of unassuming maintenance shed and Huntress goes inside, and finds a JLA teleport pod. 
which she steps into for reasons unknown and is teleported up to the Watchtower, all watched by Oracle. Yeah, proving that these things really don't have much in the way of security. <laughs> well, I think, I think I'm guessing her walking inside triggers some sort of automated system in this particular case. Yes, maybe um, maybe the machine has been specifically coded to only let her in. Um, but mind you, two undocumented teenagers did kind of slip That's through. True. That's so true. There's a flash of green light, which um, um, uh, Jeff Goldblum, in a previous issue of JLA, <laughs> said was like feeling light rain on your skin. And then suddenly, Huntress is on the watchtower... And she's greeted by Plastic Man, who thinks she's Batman, and then is slightly disappointed to learn it isn't Batman, and just runs away. And Huntress is naturally confused. She says, who are you? Where am I? And then we get Oracle in a caption box here with uh, Christopher Priest expressly telling us what Morrison's doing. <laughs> As Christopher Priest writes the caption, you're in Olympus among the Pantheon. And there is obviously a comparison between the two characters. <laughs> um, two, uh, two members of the Bat family, two female heroes who have worked with Batman over the years and who have experienced very different fates as a result. Um, and from there, we cut to the meeting room where a angry disagreement is breaking out between Kyle and... Guy Gardner, because hey, the gang's all here. Well, let's be honest, it's a disagreement between Guy Gardner and everyone else. Now, what was Kyle and Guy's relationship at this point? I think it was actually mostly friendly, but with a little bit of antagonism, because Guy is Guy. Yeah, and he does call Kyle Crabface. Uh, And if there was ever a reason to hate Guy Gardner, it's because he discs the greatest mask in the history of comics, second only to Grifter. Yeah. So here you have Guy and Kyle sort of confronting each other. Jean is stood there with his chin on his hand, just saying Guy. Aquaman is there calling Guy an idiot. Zauriel, Flash and Wonder Woman are looking on. But this is not Diana, this Wonder Woman. This is her mother, Hippolyta. Yeah, um, which of course is not addressed here. And because I don't think she even speaks in this issue, does she? No, I don't think she does. And because... Frankly, Wonder Woman and her mother look essentially identical. I think if you weren't paying attention, you probably wouldn't realise that this wasn't Diana. Yeah, I mean, the costume's a bit different. uh, But other than that, in in the Wonder Woman book, Hippolyta is very different. Not in terms of look. She does look a lot like Diana, but she's not as strong. Uh, Her powers are given to her by sort of items that she she wears and and has on her and she's got us the magic sword and shield but in this book morrison will effectively use her as if she were diana i mean yeah to to be honest there's not a world of difference between Mm. between them in terms of the role they serve in the story yeah but hey but there's a wonder woman on the team Uh, i will say her continuity at this point is odd because She's on. She's in JLA. She's in this book now. She is Wonder Woman in the Wonder Woman book. But John Byrne has also had her, and I believe that is before this, 
travel back in time to World War II and join the Justice Society just so that they could have had Wonder Woman be part of the JSA during the war without having to explain how Diana did it. Instead, it was her time-travelling mother who had taken over the role after her daughter died. So it still makes no bloody yeah, sense, but there we go. This is one. Of, this is why, you know, you try to explain comics as a... Con- just continuity as a concept to anyone with only a passing familiarity with it. And you sound like a mad person because nowadays anyone who's familiar with the movies would know that like oh wonder woman is clearly immortal and has lived a very long time and featured in major world events throughout the 20th century um not the case in the comics uh unless it's that that's been retconned a few times um i think it has now but certainly at this point in the comics she appeared a couple of years after batman and superman and the and the forming of the justice league but yeah but of course like you know in comics in publication history wonder woman is a very long-running character and has gone through many changes over the years and of course was punching hitler back Mm -hmm. in the 30s and 40s you know for you know kind of propaganda and public morale so you know if you're if you're a writer in 98 and you're trying to explain how this character who isn't immortal featured during the war well frankly when i read this when i discovered that it was hippolyta my understanding was, oh, well, Wonder Woman isn't long-lived, but Hippolyta is. So I'm sure Hippolyta was the first Wonder Woman back in World War One, And that would have made sense. Why did John Byrne have to have it be time travel? Why can't he just write a good story? That was always my assumption, PJ. When you told me it wasn't, it was kind of mind-blowing. You're like, really? That was my assumption for years as well, and then I found out what actually happened. I was so just strange. like, have her be the original Wonder Woman from World War II, and then when Diana dies, have her take up the mantle again. That's a much more interesting story. Yeah, it's very baffling, but kind of... And I guess it shows how irrelevant it is, because it doesn't matter. Like, I thought it wasn't time travel... And the end result is exactly the same. So there we go. But anyway, they're watching. So- as Guy says, anybody want to step up and take the gavel from me? And then you get a lovely page of Batman just walking towards him, the two of them confronting each other, and Guy obviously remembering what happened in issue one of Justice League back in the 80s when, the, when this scene basically played out the exact same way, but Batman knocked him out with a punch. And so Guy just leaves. Yeah, um, and Guy makes his way to the teleporter, only to bump into Steel, now in his armour, arriving. And apparently the two of them are buddies. I mean, you mentioned we learned that they went to college together. Um, was that established continuity at the time? No idea. They're, they, they're drinking buddies, basically, and yeah. Guy's on his way out, Jong's arriving, and he basically goes... Yeah, I'll I'll catch up with you later. I've got a pair of kids to pick up. And the JLA settled down for their first meeting around the round table? Yeah, and Huntress walks in and says, uh, new business, so why am I here? A few years, a few years, hours, not years. A few mm-hmm. hours ago, Batman was giving her what for, and now she's on the league, and she says, it really is that simple for you, isn't it? Batman doesn't answer because he's Batman. He just looks at her and she says, exactly, and walks out. Um, which is maybe a fair is maybe a fair response. Batman is yeah. being a bit of a manipulative dick. Um, 
And as she's leaving, uh, she passes by the, the wacky teenage characters who apparently are now having a really hard time working the teleporter. Uh, whereas before they were able to effortlessly get onto the moon. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and Huntress is like, Goth- she says Gotham City out loud because that's where she wants to go. And she assumes that the two of them are like the operators. Yeah, and Boris just replies with eggplant, which confuses Huntress. So she repeats eggplant, and then Boris says, it's Zach Perlman, and says, sorry, I thought we were free associating. Which is a... <laughs> there you go. A weird little bit of... Uh, weird, little bit of co- weird little bit of comedy there, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And Huntress is basically like, look, sod this, I want to go home. To which point Natasha Irons basically starts kind of giving a motivational speech to her. Yeah, this is weird. This is weird. She says, you've got that look. You're one of them. You want to be here so bad your eyes bleed. You belong here like you're in the family. Well, newsflash, cape chick. Families fight. It's a package deal. Don't let your ego cheat you out of something you know you want. And I feel like that's a lot to pick up in this very short space of time that, I don't know, it just doesn't feel quite right to me. No, it's it's very... If the sole purpose of these two teenagers being here was to, deli- was to deliver that speech, uh, it's not... It's very left field. Like, where the hell did that come from, basically? Yeah. Um, but Skeel turns up to be angry at them. They blame him for leaving two teenagers with an unsupervised teleporter device. Fair enough. Which is maybe fair. Superman turns up and is very happy to see Steel. He's like, oh, hey, Steel, I guess you changed your mind. And Steel is basically um, guilted into doing it or manipulated by his his pesky niece, basically. Yeah, she says, I'll be fine at home. You go save the world. And Steel's like, oh, all right, then. Yeah, so shakes hands with Superman and the two wacky teenagers escape in the teleport pod. Yeah, and then we turn the page and Superman calls the first meeting of the new Justice League to order. And we get a final panel showing everybody around the table and the full roster as it currently stands is Superman, Wonder Woman, brackets, Hippolyta, Aquaman, Green Lantern, Steel, Flash, Huntress, Plastic Man, Zoriel, Jean, and Batman. And unknown to the rest of the league, Oracle, who's listening in. Ta-da! The end. The end. So, PJ, what do you think? It's a weird issue, isn't it's it? Very um, weird. It's a very uh, weird issue. <laughs> I'm not... I, I, you know, I like Christopher Priest. I think he's done some great, great work. Uh, his run on Deadpool is is fantastic. I, I really like what he did on Black Panther, but I don't think this is his best work. No, and I have to say, kind of like visiting it with you here now, I kind of enjoyed it a little more than I have done in the past. But this has always felt like a bit of a weak chapter. In the in the trade paperback, mostly because it's 1998. Morrison is kind of 
redefining the way that superhero comics are written. And this issue is very traditionally written, I would say. This issue to me feels like it feels like it's not a story. It's a group of disparate scenes that don't really hang together as one piece. And while I enjoy a lot of those individual scenes, because it doesn't feel like a whole thing, like it's not one story, it it does it feels weaker. Like the parts just don't go together to quite make a whole for me, even though I quite like the parts. Yeah, and it's and it's interesting because again, as we were going through it, there were a couple of there were moments where I was like, oh yeah, that's actually an all right moment, or oh yeah, you know, that's 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 quite an entertaining bit. But I guess the biggest question is like, what is the point of this issue? Because the you could argue that the narrative heart of the story is drawing a comparison between Oracle and Huntress. Like, mm. is that the gem which is meant we're meant to be? Is that the thread we're meant to be following? But that feels underdeveloped and doesn't have an emotional payoff. You know, there's moments where you think, oh, is that what the point of this story is? Because, you know, a character basically says it out loud that there's, you know, I would like to switch places with you. Um, But it's like, is this the place for that revelation? And it didn't get the weight it needed to really mean anything. Yeah, I think that's nothing in that issue really feels like it's it's got enough room to breathe. Like the the speech Natasha gives Huntress is a couple of panels, and then suddenly Huntress is like, "Oh yeah, you're right. I, I do belong here." Same with Steel. It's very quickly. I can look after myself, and very quickly Steel accepts. Yeah, you can. I will join the Justice League, and it it feels like. It, yeah, the the bits of it do just need more space that they they're not given, and it's it's weird because they they've included this issue in this trade paperback like chronologically in the only place they could, which is right at the start, and it's odd because it's actually it's a very weak opening to yeah. the story, to the following events, and everybody. Everybody pretty much has the same voice. Yeah. It's very hard to find a distinctive personality among the various leaguers here. And if anything, it it, it maybe it looks bad because it's sandwiched between Morrison stories. But like it feels very mundane compared to like if I pick this up, if someone had said, like, oh yeah, JLA in 1998, this is like a series at the peak of its power, and it's really vibrant and exciting and is kind of redefining what a superhero comic can be. And if I picked up this issue, and I, I know it's not technically in the main series, but I'd be like, oh, really? I don't see it. This is very borderline boring. Yeah. Yeah, and I get the the Secret Files books, they wanted to put out one that would have fact files in it on the new leaders, because you you you've already done the fact files on the big seven in the in the first issue, so this one you have the details on Huntress and Zariel and Orion and Big Barda. But the main story on that, the origin of this version of the League, see we're introduced to them basically fully formed. The next time we see them is is when the world is introduced to the new JLA. So a story sort of saying, well, how did they put this team together? Yeah, that could be quite interesting, but. 
not this. It's not done that, like that. It's not effective enough in in terms of introducing this version of the Justice League. And we have to assume that anybody reading the main series, they can't have expected everybody to have tracked down Secret Files and Origins issue two. So, as you as you're kind of saying, it's like we have to assume that like this issue wasn't seen by everybody. So when we you know the next Morrison chapter of JLA, which is was meant to be our introduction to these characters. So if anything, like in a, reading it at this point in the storyline, kind of like undermines a lot of those introductions and surprises. Certainly, Oracle's introduction into the main series is hugely undermined by reading this first. Yeah, and it's so weird, isn't it? Because like it's like they were trying to tick boxes in writing this story because that opening page of where we have a one-page scene with with Orion and and Lightback, Light Ray, Light Ray. Sorry, I'm thinking Fastback. Sorry. Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> Hags, nothing, really. Like we don't gain any character insight into Orion, and it doesn't add anything to the, the story itself either. Yeah. Yeah. Even even the art, and again, I've I've enjoyed books Yannick Paquette has done before, but I mean, we talked about Huntress. And how this version of her costume is the superior version that the fully covered. It just makes sense. But even in this issue, Yannick Paquette sexualizes her in a way that Howard Porter doesn't. There are lots of shots where a, a convenient breeze has blown her cape away and you get a close-up of her ass. There's The most egregious scene is probably the bit where um, Batman is pointing out that undercover cops carry a checkbook in their back yeah. pocket. And there's a close-up of the cop with a checkbook in his back pocket. And for no godly reason, Huntress's ass just kind of protrudes yeah. into the panel. It's the same when she's approaching the, the, the shed in Robinson Park. Her cape is just conveniently blown away, so you've just got this shot of her ass there. And Porter doesn't do that when he draws Huntress in the book. He doesn't overly sexualise the costume. No, no, he doesn't. And... It really jumped out at me revisiting this issue that that's what Paquette was doing. And I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, it seems very... I know yeah. it was the 90s. I, yeah, I know. It, I was going to say the same thing. You want to say it was a different era. That doesn't excuse it, but it does put no. it in context. But but yeah, I don't know. It, it's just not in service of anything greater, you know. No. Comics can be titillating or exciting or thrilling, just because like any body of work can be. But it, this is just like a bit of everything without really achieving anything. <laughs> like you know, if you're gonna tell it, you know, if it's gonna be like a softcore porn comic, just do it. Like just be honest <laughs> about it. You know, let's get some superhero wangs out and just just have a good time. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's just an, under, an un, a very underwhelming issue. I feel yeah. Yeah, I will say I, I love the Guy Gardner scene. I think that's brilliant. A, really, a nice throwback and, and reference to the 80s Justice League issue one. Uh, I think that's really well done, really nice, with just not only the recreation of the panel, but his brief confrontation with Batman. Uh, but there's not much else to recommend. The double-page Aquaman splash, that's quite nice. That might be but... the best thing in the story, I feel, actually. Hmm. Um. Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think like what's a what's a moment that kind of what's a redeeming feature for me. Um, 
I like that Huntress gets a little bit of a voice to kind of call Batman out for his hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like how Superman, Batman, and Aquaman all have quite a flat, uniform kind of voice. And I yeah. really, I, I don't know. I don't like Zoria. I don't like the fact that Zoria says evil is afoot or there is evil afoot. Like, you know, him, him having an angry encounter with a nun. That's kind of fun. You can do some fun stuff with that, but it's a small thing. But I just feel that like that's like somebody saying like out of the way, citizen, or you know, up, up and away. Like unless it's being done ironically, I don't think you can really do that anymore. I'm wondering if if this issue means Christopher Priest was the first person that wasn't Morrison to write Zauriel. Mm-hmm. Oh no, because no, that can't work because some of Mark Wade's issues had come out. And I, I believe at the same time, uh, JLA World Without Grown Ups was oh. being published. So I believe Zauriel is in that as well. So maybe not. Interesting. But certainly not many people had written Zauriel at this point. So maybe so Christopher Priest just doesn't have a handle on the character. Well, it wasn't really a character that anyone had a lot invested in, to be honest. Yeah. Like, I can't imagine there was much of a style guide for writing Zauriel at the time. So, yeah, maybe I don't want to be, don't want to come across as too harsh, but it just kind of, as you say, it's not an outstanding piece of work from creators who have gone on to do better. Yeah. And it doesn't really add anything to the series. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, I think it's interesting that they did choose to reprint this one in the main JLA trades, but didn't do that with the first one. That is incredibly weird come to think of it, because, yeah, you're right, like, that that other story adds so much more than this one does. Yeah. Were they worried that, like, people picking up the trades wouldn't understand or get who these characters were? But mind you, this story doesn't really explain that either, I suppose. I'm wondering if maybe they just, they didn't know where to put Secret Files and Origins 1, because it would have been jarring to have it at the beginning of New World Order. And then if you put it in the beginning of, maybe in the beginning of American Dreams and just have a little this is set before JLA1 footnote in it or something, that might have worked. Yeah, it might have worked. I mean, American Dreams is already a bit of a, you know, random grab bag of stories anyway. So it probably wouldn't wouldn't have been out of place. Um, has Has it ever been collected in a... In a trade, Secret I don't Files know. And it's in. Well, I've got it in uh, a trade called JLA Secret Files, but it only it reprints the main stories from um, Secret Files and Origins books of six of the big seven because John didn't have one. So the stories from Aquaman, Green Lantern, Flash, Batman, uh, Wonder Woman, and Superman one JLA Secret Files and Origins one of them and then the main story from JLA Secret Files and Origins one as well so it's basically just uh, six retellings of the origins of classic DC characters and then a new JLA story but I I don't know if it was then reprinted in any of the actual JLA trades because I know they've done new editions that sort of collect bigger chunks of the story together don't they so like just Grant Morrison's JLA volume one or something oh yeah like yeah like the old not quite the ultimate editions but yeah like big 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 paperbacks yeah so like the whole lot is in like four books or something so I don't know if it might be in there somewhere maybe so yeah it's it's just an oddity isn't it I mean Mm. and you say the next JLA Secret Files and Origins was the around the Tower of Babel 
storyline. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the Tower of Baby Bell. Um, yeah, so it's it's I think set before the main story, but I think the the Tower of Babel trade I believe puts it between parts two and three, or between three and four. Uh, the story from that, which explains how Talia Al Ghul infiltrates the JLA Watchtower and, and gets all their secrets, basically. So there, there, there were big gaps between issues of Secret Files and Origins. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there was any regular schedule. I'm not even sure why they did a third JLA one, to be honest, because they didn't introduce anyone new into the League. So the Fact Files were in that one were just sort of, I think, about upcoming villains, and they used it to promote some upcoming JLA stories. Like, there's a couple of stories that fed into JLA miniseries that came out around the time as well. I wonder if they... I wonder if they kept doing it, because I... I um Obviously, I kind of... I missed a bit of the Mark Wade run after Morrison. So I, I've never read Tower of Babel. Um, but, late, you know, in later days, I did collect and quite enjoyed uh, the Joe Kelly run. And that had, like, a whole slew of random new characters, like uh, Faith or um, Major Disaster or Manitou Raven. You know, that did feel like a, a really weird period of the JLA kind of cast. There, there was definitely a fourth issue that was around that time, uh, which was at the same time as... I can't remember what it was called, but there was a spin-off book that was sort of like the covert JLA oh, team. Oh, J- JLA Elite. J- JLA Elite. That's yes. JLE. Because Flash was on both teams and he had a black version of his costume for JLE. He did, and yes. I, the main story in Secret Files and Origins 4 was that a JLA and a JLE mi- mission were both happening at the same time, oh, and Flash have... basically had to run between the two. I, oh, good grief. Yeah, I own that. I own um, I own the um, the trade of JLA, JL Elite, or Justice League Elite. And yeah, I, I've, that story's in it. I hadn't realised mm. that was a Secret Files and Origins. Yeah, so that was. I think that was number four, and that would have had fact files of, as you say, like Faith and Manitou Raven and Major Disaster and, and all those characters that Joe Kelly introduced. I've got a feeling that's where they ended. I've got a feeling that once you get to sort of... Because it wasn't long after that that you sort of start getting all those crises DC had in succession. Yeah, so Identity it, it, Crisis, Infinite Crisis, Final Crisis. And I think they stopped them just before that sort of time kicked in. It is weird because I know... Because um, if Morrison started this, rebooted the JLA, and we had like issue one in 97, I want to say that under Joe Kelly and Doug Mank, which was around the time they were introducing the uh, the, the Elite... Um, as this other team and and a spin-off of the JLA, I think they hit issue 100. Like, I, I think that was, like, a big milestone. Yeah, I seem to recall that, too. Because Wade wasn't on the book for that long. I think it was only around 20 issues or so after Morrison. So that takes it up into the early 60s, perhaps, late 50s, early 60s. And then I think it's when sort of you, you have a couple of fill-ins and then Joe Kelly takes it on. Yeah, yeah, that that would work actually because you had some weird issues where like um, Chris Claremont and John Byrne turned up for one trade mm. paperback and it was awful, um, <laughs> and yeah, it was very very curious. And but yeah, I guess you know it's weird, it's weird how uh, things repeat themselves, particularly at DC because in '97 JLA desperately needed a reboot and it was successfully done, and they got a hundred issues out of it which is mm. something but post that period you could already tell that a change was coming again like it was growing stagnant and then i think we get 
a bit of filler and then it's like infinite crisis yeah so you get the issues where there's no real core team even it just seems to be rotating people who come in in both in terms of the creative teams on the book and the characters who appeared as members of the league um for a while so around the time of identity crisis um built then building up to infinite crisis and then after infinite crisis it got relaunched as justice league of america written by brad Meltzer, and it, he just completely changed the book then and put most of the focus on red tornado weirdly oh and oh but god when did when did the new 52 hit that was after final crisis wasn't it yeah you have infinite crisis and then uh, a year or two later final crisis and then a year or two after final crisis is Flashpoint, and that's where you get the new 52. Oh, jeez, Louise. Yeah. It's almost impossible. <laughs> that was a weird period. Like, I feel like yeah. I could just about keep track of, like, the 100 issues of JLA. Yeah, because every each crisis was only, like, two years apart, and each one treated it like a soft reboot of the DCU until Flashpoint and New 52, in, in which it was... Almost a hard reboot, but not quite a hard reboot, because certain things had still happened. Because didn't Infinite Crisis give us the time jump after that, where they did one One year year later, later, which then did the 52 year, where they did a weekly comic for a year. Yeah. And then they did Countdown to Final Crisis, or Countdown, whatever that was. And then it was Final Crisis and... Yeah, and then I and then yeah, I think I was like the last the last thing I, I kind of had any hope of keeping track of, to be honest, because I'm aware yeah, I, I'm aware of Flashpoint, I know what happened, but I can't remember how long it was between Final Crisis and Flashpoint, but it wasn't long because it's in that time you get Flash Rebirth, so Barry Allen comes back, then Blackest Night happens almost straight away, I think, and then I'm pretty sure it's very soon after Blackest Night that you get Flashpoint and the new 52. Yeah. God, a lot happened in Green Lantern around that time as well, yeah. didn't, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Jeez Louise. I mean, and Marvel was doing the same thing. I mean, not with the great big, you know, not with the universe reboots, but with big, big events. Big events, like big, big changes to kind of the status quo. And I think, you know, the last decade of comics is probably more than the last decade now has been defined by these these yearly events and they particularly at marvel they were annually yeah and then but there'd be also be delays on the books usually so one event would finish and then the next one would be starting within two months almost and it, it i think it's it's a recent term but event fatigue is real it was exhausting no but it was exhausting and, it, and it's one of the reasons i stopped kind of you know following mainstream comics on a monthly basis because they were they were seeing clearly they were seeing results for you know shaking up the formula but it was very i don't know wasn't every crisis meant to every crisis or every event meant to be like a new jumping on point for readers it was meant to be yeah. like well something big is happening so you can you'll get like a real taster of the dc or marvel universe but you know marvel in particular it was just like it was it was unrelenting <laughs> you know <laughs> unrelenting it's like um Secret Invasion, then, oh, whatever the next bloody one was. Siege. Siege, yeah. And and Dark Avengers, New Avengers, Mighty Avengers. It was just like, ugh, please. (laughs) 
I need some relief. Yeah, it got utterly, utterly ridiculous. It really did. And I I just feel, because every time an event happens, it would take over every book as well. You know, you miss the days where an event was either a a maxi series or a mini series, but one that didn't have many tie-ins outside of that. Or like Onslaught, where there were only really two one-shots that weren't main books, and then the story was told over two or three months, but through a few books. It mm. wasn't everything, but a few books told the story, and and then you had the big one shots to begin and end it. But, well, of course, yeah. like you know, you bring up the onslaught saga, which was kind of like my gateway point for, say, like reading X Men in the in the in the nineties, and um, I mean, for all its faults, um, onslaught was a genuine. It was meant to be a real game changing moment. Like mm. it, it didn't stick because you know nothing, nothing does ultimately, but. But yeah, it was a major event and it had impact, you know, killing off so many heroes because it it honestly hadn't been done before. Not at Marvel. If you do that every year, you know, it kind of loses its effect somewhat. And, And that's the thing. Every single one of these Marvel events in recent years has involved a major character dying during it mm. to get the headlines up. Like, um, was it Hulk was killed in Civil War II? Oh, or Bruce he? Banner was killed, yeah, by, by by Hawkeye. And but was then back less than a year later. So they'll they'll kill a character for the headlines and then bring them back like six months later. Like every year. Yeah. Yeah. It's um you know, or um you know, it's, it's something like Spider-Man revealing his public, you know, revealing his secret identity, mm-hmm. um, which of course is is good for headlines and and good for a, a, some stories. But you've also written yourself into a hole because you know any movie adaptation which people love is not going to have that same thing. Um, far from home, notwithstanding, I don't know what's going on with Spider-Man movies at the moment, but they had to wreck on it, you know, because. That's not what people buy a Spider-Man comic for. Yeah, and that's the problem. You know that these major earth-shaking changes, none of them are going to last. It's the eternal the eternal problem with continuity. We love it because otherwise we'd just be reading some brand new comic about Strongman and Fast Dude. Like, there's a reason we care more about Superman and The Flash. And it's because they have a history. But, yeah, for crying out loud, like, how do you, how do you keep that fresh without, I guess... Maybe something like Earth 2 was the answer, you know, <laughs> doing kind of just standalone stories. I think, I've said it before, but I think both Marvel and DC just need to do a hard reboot. Just commit to it. Go in and say, right, we're ending the universe. Not, not you know, end it with a happy ending, sure. A big story that, that just brings an end to that continuity. Start over, new creators to retell origins and just do something different without trying to hold on to what came before mm. and just make it completely new and, and a different take on it. And if you want to retell some of the old stories and, and redo them, then you can and, and do it that way. Like that, But that's what I think they need. I think they're just too bogged down in what came before at this point. And there's just too much of what came before at this point for it to really continue and be effective. Yeah. I almost wonder if you could somehow avoid having to do a big reboot by um, acknowledging that there is a continuity, but dialing back the events and maybe just signing a creative team to do like a year. Mm. 
you know, maybe, you know, not just a few issues, but going like, look, tell a story. Please don't reinvent the wheel. You can have intrigue, but we don't need to learn that, say, Superman is the dream of a ghost of a fiction of a child in another dimension or something or a robot, you know, or Krypton never existed. Like, just tell a story and then we'll we'll have trades we can collect and then in a year's time we'll decide whether we want to kind of carry on or we'll get like a whole new creative team in and we'll acknowledge that the previous events happened but then we won't have to explain why Spider-Man has fought in two world wars and uh, <laughs> been to the other side of a the galaxy 15 times lost his arm gained two more arms you know become a symbiote because that's a nightmare like how do you explain how a character has done so much while also only being active as a superhero for maybe like five years i remember a few years ago a friend of mine who was just getting into comics and he'd heard about some of the big events but he hadn't really read them before and one of them had had, had uh tickled his fancy, and he said the immortal phrase to me, can you briefly explain Onslaught? It took me two hours to briefly <laughs> explain Onslaught to him. <laughs> oh, you poor, you poor soul. Because <laughs> if you're going to explain Onslaught, you have to go back and explain Fatal Attractions. And that's uh, where you start, and then you, there's there's a lot, because if you just go, so that happened, and then we get to here, they'll be like, well, wait, why did that, and yeah, so it took me two hours to explain Onslaught I mean, you, to, to him, some briefly. Extent, to some extent, you've got to explain the Age of Apocalypse, because you've got yep. to say where Nate Grey came from, and, yep. you know, touch on some Fantastic Four, and Franklin Richards. I mean, you've yep. got to cover Heroes Reborn, and yep. Heroes Return, Yeah, you know, um... So no, you can't briefly explain Onslaught. And I think the same is true of any question anyone would ask about any storyline in comics these days. <laughs> just, um, I don't know. Just find a, fun, find a fun story somewhere in the long continuity. Read it and enjoy it. And yeah. maybe, I don't know, check back in in a few years once we finally worked out what to do about continuity. <laughs> My recommendation is just go and read all of Grant Morrison's run on JLA and listen to our podcast while you do so. Yeah, listen to the number one Grant Morrison JLA-themed podcast, um, The Morrison Cast with Dave and Frank, which is <laughs> really, really good, and I'm very envious of them. I wish we had a podcast about that. I wish my name was Frank. <laughs> um, as we come as we come to the end of this episode um i've been frank uh, pj's been dave and uh we, we oh, should give him don't want me dave give me dave that's rubbish stupid dave a massive shout out to uh gav mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork and to Elliot Red for composing and performing our fantastic theme tune, Justice. And if you've enjoyed uh, hearing us ramble, uh, we're both on the social medias. You can, our details are in the description below. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying the show. Yes, we would. And PJ, it's that you know time of time of the week again. Could you please uh, uh, see us off in your own classic fashion? Um, bye. Solid gold. Ha, 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 ha.